The following is a message by Dr. Michael Horton of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Our passage this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17. Now in giving the following instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. To begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you so that the approved among you may be recognized. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one person is hungry while another is drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night on which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, he should eat at home so that you could come together and not cause judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Here we have in this, uh, this passage, uh, rich with all kinds of practical exhortation, an indictment followed by an, the words of institution and uh, then finally the call to examination. It's significant that the apostle Paul addresses the Corinthians as those who are saints, those who are chosen, those who are holy in the Lord, even though they are so messed up as a church. And it is precisely on that basis of who they are in Christ that he can take them to the woodshed and uh, bring them around to uh, the practical implications of their identity in Jesus Christ. And here is one place particularly where Paul indicates that they are not living in a way that is consistent with their profession of faith. Uh, Some of us uh, have the privilege of... uh, experiencing high table uh, in England at uh, Oxford. And one of the things that you do beforehand is go into an ante room and you have uh, sherry and some hors d'oeuvres. And then when it's time for, uh, for dinner, those who are seated at high table go in first with all the students in the college standing. 
You go up to the high table and you sit down and you have uh, all of the best fare while the poor uh, students are uh, sitting at their small spaces and and tables uh, sort of eating the scraps. This is not unfamiliar uh, in Paul's day. There were two kinds of uh, meals. One meal that was for the the friends of wealthy uh, people in the city and then another one that could be shared with people who had little to contribute to the meal. Paul had already uh, indicted the Corinthians for syncretism, participating in idolatrous practices while presuming to come to the Lord's table. You can't have fellowship with demons, their altars, and fellowship with Christ. He said that in the previous chapter, Uh, verses 14 through 22. But here, he is upbraiding the Corinthians for the way they approach the Lord's table, even. First, the rebuke he's about to offer is so severe that he can say that it might be better for them not to receive the Lord's Supper, not to celebrate the Lord's Supper at all, rather than to receive it or celebrate it as they do. He says there must be factions, schismata, among you in order to test the body and show those who are approved. Wheat and weeds grow up together. It's a mixed assembly. There will always be convulsions, declensions, and reformations. And we've seen throughout the book of Corinthians, all the way up to to this point, that there are grounds for these divisions, divorces, Uh, brothers and sisters taking each other to court, immorality, gossip, also factions around Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Some say that the resurrection is already past, so there are theological divisions as well. But what Paul has in mind here is the profanation of the Lord's table itself. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. That's pretty strong language. Not just that you're abusing it, but that it is now a different ordinance. It is no longer the Lord's table. It is no longer the Lord's supper. Come together here is uh, a phrase that Paul uses uh, three times in this section. And then again in chapter 14, coming together as the body of Christ. The synaxis, the gathering together of the body of Christ for the formal ministry of word and sacrament. And so it was for the celebration of the Lord's Supper as well as the word that they gathered regularly. But when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. By coming together is meant that mutual edification that we have in Jesus Christ as the head of the church. But Paul is sort of uh, uh, playing with the phrase here. When you come together, you're not really coming together. Therefore, you're not really participating in the Lord's Supper. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, he says in verse 18, verse 33, So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat. So this is the purpose, uh, one of the purposes, major purposes of assembling together as his body. So the gathering isn't informal, but it has been turned into something informal. A 
a, a sacred rite has been turned into a common meal. In these common meals, there would often be a main meal, as I mentioned, served for the special guests who could bring uh, their own contributions to the meal, and they would sit uh, in, a, in the center of the room. There would be the, the central dining room, and there would be room to recline. And they would have sumptuous fare. They would eat the delicacies. And, of course, the, the poor people in church couldn't get off work that early to come. They didn't have the leisure. And, and if they could, they couldn't bring the delicacies and the fine wine that was brought by the other guests. So what they had was a, a particular meal, the, the special meal for the special people in church who could do that, And then it was followed by the communion service. And this was piggyback on the social custom of the the formal meal, dining meal, and sort of cocktails and hors d'oeuvres afterwards for other invited guests. I came across an interesting text from uh, Jerome Murphy O'Connor in his book, Corinth, Texts and Archaeology, in which he uh, quotes the fifth satire of Juvenal, This is from the first century A.D. Since I am asked to dinner no longer as before a purchased guest, why is not the same dinner served to me as to you? You take oysters fattened in the Lucrine Lake. I, such a mussel, through a hole in the shell. You get mushrooms, I get hog funguses. Golden with fat, a turtle dove gorges you with its bloated rump. But there is set before me a magpie that's died in its cage. Why do I dine with you, Ponticus, though I dine with you? The dole has gone. Let us have the benefit of that. Let us eat the same fare. We drunk from glass, you from urine, Ponticus. Why? That a transparent cup may not betray your two wines. And so that's what's going on in Corinth. There behaving like the world. The supper took the place of this later event. The the agape feast was the special feast for the special guests. It's interesting, Paul doesn't use his apostolic authority to pronounce on societal divisions. He doesn't uh, issue an apostolic uh, mandate about how Corinth is to run its civic affairs. He does pronounce on what's done at church in this counter-society, this new society that is centered around Christ. Do it, on, do it in your own homes. Do it on your own time. There are plenty of things that you might prefer. You might have certain hobbies. You'd like to get, get together with people who have similar hobbies. You might want to get together with fellow older people or fellow younger people. You might have an interest in classical music. You might have an interest in reggae. Fine. Uh, there are all kinds of hobbies in Corinth all kinds of social clubs you could get together with, with people to, to uh, have these affinities. Not in church. Do it in your own homes. Do it on your own time. It's the Lord's Supper, not yours. Similar remarks, of course, are found in James where he reiterates this command. It must have been a real problem uh, in the church following the social customs that gave higher rank and higher privilege to the rich and excluded the poor from the assembly, or at least gave pride of place to the wealthy. And it always feels better to sit at high table 
It always feels like you're around people who are like you. Or at least people you would like to be like. But Paul says Jesus Christ is the Lord at this table. And we're all seated with him at the high table. He turns to the words of institution in verses 23 through 26. And he emphasizes uh, here, I myself, ego, I myself received this institution and now pass it on to you. His basic point is, I'm not giving you a new command regarding the Lord's Supper. I'm recalling you to the second mark of the church, which you are now lacking. You're the ones who have corrupted the Lord's table. I'm not giving you anything new. I'm giving you what I, what I received, what was passed on to me, and I now pass on to you. The bread that we break, he said in chapter 10, is it not a participation in the body of Christ, the cup that we bless? Is it not a koinonia, a fellowship, a participation in the blood of Christ? What is received in the sacrament then is, as we confess, the true and natural body and blood of Jesus Christ. This is not a slight manner, matter. But not as a magical substance, but rather as the sacrifice for our sins. This is where we find our unity, not by a sort of social unity contrived by us according to our whims and desires. We find our unity in that we go to the same sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, Paul says here. By definition, that has to be received in faith in order to be received at all. Otherwise, it's a judgment, as we're going to see. This institution was so abused and corrupted that it ceased to be the Lord's Supper indeed. He wasn't calling for a change in the sacrament, but telling them that they had made crucial changes that voided it of its sacramental efficacy. Interesting, Paul doesn't say anything about how the agape feast is to be celebrated because that wasn't a, a, a divine institution. He focuses here on the Lord's Supper. There are different views, uh, of course, about uh, the uh, referent here uh, when, when Paul says that the sin involved here is a sin against the body and blood of Christ, some have argued that uh, the church is intended here by the body of Christ. Not properly discerning the body of Christ means not properly discerning the fellowship of the saints. Gordon Fee and others have, have argued that uh, view. The other view, probably more dominant, is that discerning the body here means discerning the bread as the body of Christ. And I don't think really. Uh, Either one of those is the most plausible. I think there's a better explanation that brings both of those, the truth in both of those ideas together. Paul is saying, by invoking really a covenant sanction here, Paul is saying, the sacrifice of Christ bore away the guilt of our sins. You are profaning that sacrifice by what you are doing here. The sign and the thing signified are so closely related that sinning against the sacrament is sinning against Christ himself, which is also sinning against his body. So all of these things are bound up together, as when Paul, uh, as Saul, 
is confronted by the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and hears the word, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As Saul was on his way to persecute the church. So in this way, the natural body of Christ, his historical, physical body, and the ecclesial body are brought together through the Eucharistic body as we gather together to receive Christ in his meal. Finally, the examination. Judge or be judged is Paul's point in his examination here. Examine, discern, and judge, the same uh, verb uh, is used repeatedly throughout this section of Paul's exhortation. He does say that they are to judge or discern the body, to discern themselves, or be discerned, that is, judged by God. But he's not meaning here judged ultimately in the sense of being condemned. Crema is uh, the, the uh, uh, word that he uses here, not katakrima. And koimonte, sleep, many have fallen asleep, uh, always refers to dying, believers dying in the Lord. And so he's referring to a temporal judgment here in the apostolic church attending their unworthy celebration of the supper. There's a reason why Paul immediately goes into a discussion of spiritual gifts in the next chapter by which the one body is served by its many parts. So also in Romans 12.5, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. In other words, there is no union with Christ apart from union with his body. And I would submit that this is something we need to think about as as we uh, uh, prepare for communion. Often, I think, in our preparation for communion, we have an individualistic view of the Lord's Supper that we are, it's only vertical. We're going there to, to receive something as individuals, mano y mano, Jesus Christ and me, we're sitting there together communing, uh, not always recognizing that through this communion, we are actually, a body is being formed. And that's why the relationship with the whole church, the wider church, is inextricable from our relationship to Christ. There is no union with Christ apart from union with each other. Herman Ritterboss says, The word unworthy here can scarcely reproduce the meaning. For every idea, as though by merit or legal claim, one would have to or were able to make himself worthy of eating the bread is to be excluded. The thought is rather that of inadequate, appropriate, uh, inadequate in, inappropriate eating and drinking in a manner that is unsuited to it and not in harmony with it, not respecting its sanctity, in other words, not recognizing what is happening here. Christ is giving himself, and in giving himself, is giving his ecclesial body. Calvin says, I conclude from this passage that Christ's body is really, that is truly given to us in the supper, to be wholesome food for our souls. To, un- to eat unworthily, then, is to pervert the pure and right use of it by our abuse of it. But now it is asked what sort of examination ought to be to which Paul exhorts us. 
Papists make it consist in auricular confession. They order all that are to receive the supper to examine their life carefully and anxiously so that they may unburden all their sins in the ear of a priestling, such as their preparation. I maintain, however, that this holy examination of which Paul speaks is widely different from torture. Those persons, after having tortured themselves with reflection for a few hours and making the priest, such as he is, privy to their vileness, imagine that they have done their duty. But, says Calvin, to come worthily is to come with faith and repentance. It is not a perfect faith or repentance that is required, as some, by urging beyond due bounds a perfection that can nowhere be found, would shut out forever from the supper every individual. If, however, thou aspirest after the righteousness of God with the earnest desire of thy mind and humbled under a view of thy misery, dost wholly lean upon Christ's grace and rest upon him, know that thou art a worthy guest to approach that table. Worthy, I mean in this respect, that the Lord does not exclude thee, though in another point of view there is something in thee that is not yet as it ought to be. For faith, when it is but begun makes those worthy who were unworthy. Donald McGavran, the founder of the Fuller Institute of Church Growth, argued the homogeneous church growth principle on the basis that people like to go to church with people who are like them. Churches tend to grow more quickly if they are composed of people from the same ethnic, socioeconomic, educational, and other backgrounds. But I think what Paul is saying here is that McGavern is wrong. Uh, people may like to go to church with people who are like them, but Paul is saying the gospel saves us from going to hell with people who are like us. And in doing so, the gospel says not only have we been chosen in Christ, not only have we been allowed to the table, but in, in this act, he has also chosen my family for me. I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose the, the people who sit with me at this table. may not have chosen them as my friends. may not want to hang out with them during the week when I'm going to uh, my own hobbies. We may not listen to the same music. We may not have the same interests. But now I'm taking my family meal with them, and I'm being made one with them. And the only possible explanation is that we are in Christ not in America, not in the age group of 33 to 45. That's what makes us Catholic, being in Christ. The danger in applying this passage, I think even in our circles, is that we shift its focus on the politics of Christ and his kingdom to the inner soul. And that's exactly what Paul is driving us out of here in this passage. Communion can't become an individual transaction that leaves the rest of the body out in the cold. And that's the very problem Calvin saw with, with Rome and the Anabaptists, why they had the, this intense focus on a private experience of introspection that really had no particular relationship to the ecclesial body. But Paul sees it not as the reward for victorious Christians and harmonious churches, but as the source of assurance and unity. 
connecting the vertical line, God to us, to its horizontal vector from us to each other. Whenever believers gather to receive Christ's body and blood, that is their identity. That is where they are located. When by faith, through eating the bread and drinking the wine, they receive the body and blood of Christ, they preach Christ's sacrificial death and share in it until Jesus comes. They find their salvation and their unity, and there the kingdom of Christ is partially visible in this passing evil age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your gospel, which is to be proclaimed the ends of the earth, a gospel which has not only brought together Jew and Gentile, but rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, You've brought us together in Christ, and you've seated us all with him in heavenly places at the high table. And we pray, Father, that this will inform our diaconal ministry. It will inform uh, the way we view each other in our churches, the way we uh, think about what's really important in our church life, and the way we live with each other in the world during the week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.